Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. For those of you who do not know me, I'm Tom Buter, assistant pastor here. And uh, if you will please join me in turning into your Bibles to Second Chronicles, we'll continue studying the kings of Judah. So Second Chronicles chapter 21. Let us pray as we come to God's Word. Lord in heaven, we come to your word asking that you would give light to our eyes, that we would see, that you would give our hearts understanding and you would give our minds comprehension, that our whole being would be able to come to your word and to read it rightly and to know it and to believe it and to love it, that we would walk in your ways as you are gracious and merciful to us. We ask that your spirit would be with us in a special way to give us this light and understanding. We also ask, O oh Lord, that we would worship you as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, who is the word, amen. Second Chronicles chapter 21. <clears throat> Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver, gold, and valuable possessions, together with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father, and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the, daughters of Ahab, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over with his commanders and all his chariots, who, and, <clears throat> and he rose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and his chariot commanders. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. At that time, Libna also revolted from his rule, because he had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah, and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, and made it Judah to go astray. And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom, you shall have, you, and also have killed your brothers of your father's house who are better than you. Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. And you yourself will have a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease, 
day by day. And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who are near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah, invaded it, and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house, and also his sons and his wives, so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. And after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor, like the fires made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to probably wash my hands after reading a passage like that. Uh, You may be familiar with this concept historically, perhaps even personally. The test of the third generation. Family business, the kingdom, uh, religion, whatever it might be, traditions. A father can pass it to a son, but it can be hard for it to make it to the third generation. It's just hard. Uh, There's a TV show uh, I saw where um, I think it was was The Good Place, so it's a TV show about the afterlife. There's a character in there who was thinking that he was a pretty good person. He had uh, taken his his father's company from a $50 million company to a $51 million company. Uh, So... With inflation, it probably was worth less. He was, was the third generation carrying on the family business, and it wasn't really going anywhere. Uh, or we see with even in the history of the kings that we've, we've read about. You have David, then Solomon, and then Rehoboam, third generation. Get a little revival with Asa and Jehoshaphat. Now we have Jehoram. He's the third generation. The first generation experiences God's wonders. The second generation sees what their fathers and their parents are experiencing. And the third generation only hears about it. Jehoram hasn't seen what Jehoshaphat saw with his own father. He's seen some things, but he hasn't experienced what his fathers had to experience. But uh, as we live the Christian life, as we read the Scriptures, we hear over and over again we're supposed to teach the coming generation. We build the generations. We tell it to the coming generation. We speak of the Lord's steadfast love, which endures forever. He's faithful to His covenant, which endures through the generations. And yet, it seems like things can't get really past the third generation. So what are we to do? This text, as icky and depressing as it is, is a lesson for us in trusting God's means to reach God's ends. Trusting God's means to get us to God's ends. Not man's means to get us to God's ends, and not man's means to get us to man's means, or even God's means to get us to man's ends, but God's means to get us to God's ends. But what are His means and what are His ends? His means, well, His ends are Sanctification, right? This is God's will for your life. 
your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, eternal life, that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish but have eternal life. These are His ends. This is where He's going to get us to. How He gets us to, how He gets us there is through His means. And His means are His Word and His Spirit. That's what we learned from this text. So let's look at our text and see these foundational principles that are presented to us this morning. The outline, if you want to follow along and have it a bit organized in your mind with me, talk about things that are made, talk about what Jehoram made, what the Lord made, and what the people made. So what Jehoram made. Jehoram ascends to the throne after Jehoshaphat's good and long reign. Jehoshaphat reigned 25 years, and he dies and is buried as it goes with the kings. Jehoram is 32 when he becomes king. We're told that twice. He's been trained in kingly duties by his father. He would have been a little boy when his father became king and would have seen his father's entire reign and would have been trained. And he'll prove, surprisingly, even to be a capable military leader. But our text tells us that he made some things, taking liberty with the word made, as you'll see. But here's what he made. He made much of himself. And he also made a mess of things. And he made the people to sin. So under this first point, we've got sub-points. First, he made much of himself. Jehoshaphat appears to have have wisely settled his seven sons into purposeful roles. There are multiple examples of of kings and judges establishing their sons. Uh, As we see here, he he has seven sons. What's he going to do with seven sons? He doesn't have seven kingdoms. So he, he gives them gold and silver and valuable possessions, and he also gives them cities and puts them in charge of things. But a city is not a kingdom. To Jehoram, he gives the kingdom. Why? Because Jehoram's the firstborn. It's his right. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17 tells us explicitly that if a man has multiple wives and many sons, he should not pick a favorite. He's supposed to give the firstborn his due rights. So the firstborn gets a double portion. He'd get a double blessing. He'd get twice as much as the others. So if you have three sons... You divide things up four ways, one part, one part, and then one son gets two parts. So it is with Jehoshaphat. He's a wise and honorable king, and he says, I've got a firstborn. He gets the kingdom. These other sons get cities. But Jehoram, when he becomes king, he doesn't think, oh, good policy. My brothers have things to take care of, uh, and I've got a kingdom. But when he becomes established, what does he do? He kills them. He wants no hint of anybody challenging him. The most likely threats to his throne would come from his brothers, but we have no indication that they were actually going to threaten his throne. We're introduced to him very quickly as not a good man, not trustworthy, someone who would kill his own brothers for his own gain, or not even for his own gain, but for his own security. But we might even look at the, the situation and think, did, did Jehoshaphat see this coming? Didn't he know that maybe the oldest brother wasn't playing nice with his younger brothers and that there was going to be something in the future? You know, we're not supposed to try and pick and choose and be wiser than God. It's God's Word says that the eldest son gets a double portion, and Jehoshaphat's following God's Word, and it's looking quite messy. 
So what Jehoshaphat does is puts his kingdom in the hands of God, and we see that God is placed in the hands of this man, and we would have a lot of questions about his leadership. So Jehoram kills his brothers for his own security, for his own gain. He makes much of himself, even kills some of the other officials. It's not a good way to establish your reign, that you would purge it. Yes, it's more in your control, but is it being led well? Is it being established? It's being established for himself and not for the good of others. So he's made his own place secure with his own making much of himself. But there's also something else he makes. He makes a mess of himself. He made a mess of himself by killing his brothers, but he also seems to destabilize the kingdom that he's trying to establish. As we see in verse, in verse 8, there's a revolt. It's not good for a king when he's got a rebellion on his hands, but it may possibly be an indicator of who that king is if there's a rebellion. Perhaps the Edomites have seen that he's not quite like his father, and as he's wiped out officials and seems to be focused on his own internal politics, there's an opportunity for them to rise against him. And so his poor leadership has put the kingdom in a weak position. So he's inherited the kingdom, but now he's got to run it, and he's not running it well. And so the Edomites rebel. He doesn't take it. He goes after them, right? He's going to try to subject them and show that he's, he's a warrior and a leader. But he also shows that he's not really that capable. What does our text tell us? In verse 9, he struck them by night, and he struck the Edomites, who had surrounded him. So he managed to get himself surrounded, which is not a good strategy for winning a battle. Now, it does work that you might attack at night and make a breakaway. So his victory is the victory of desperation and escape. He doesn't seem to be that capable. And he has another rebellion on his hands as he continues to lead the kingdom poorly. It does, it does, our text tells us he defeats the Edomites, but it tells us that they are in rebellion to this day. He doesn't really beat them. He may win the battle that day and save his own skin, but he doesn't put them under his control. And so, uh, the kingdom, you can see his control is, is falling apart, but the, the text goes further to tell us in verse 10, there's another rebellion on his hands, and this comes from Libna. And Libna, you've probably never heard of it, a somewhat obscure city, but this is a city in Judah. These are Levites settled in Judah. Now he has his own people rebelling against him. And they've rebelled for a clear reason, not to establish their own king, but they've rebelled against him because he had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now, this isn't a verse to tell us, go and do likewise when you have a bad ruler, just get out from under their thumb, but it is to describe how do people react to poor leadership. The tendency is to want to get away from it. And so, uh, the Levites in Libna, are, uh, their, their hearts are saddened that the son of Jehoshaphat is proving so far to be unlike his father. And so they rebel. So he's made a mess of things. He's made a mess of his kingdom. And he's also uh, made a mess of uh, his own life. So he makes a mess of his own kingdom, not just in how he handles the um, 
and not just how he handles the, 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 the battles out there, but he also makes a mess of things in his religious leadership. His military leadership, his political leadership is, is questionable, but his, his religious leadership, he's a king, he's supposed to be a representative of God and, and leading the people. But verse uh, 11 tells us the third thing that he makes a mess of. He makes a mess of things by making the people to sin. Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah, verse 11, and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. People will follow their king, and people will even follow a bad king because people are looking for leadership. And so we can see that uh, what he's done is completely opposite of what his fathers have done. We are told that Asa removed idols, destroyed idols. We're told that Jehoshaphat removed high places. And now what are we told about Jehoram? That he makes them. He undoes the work of his fathers. He leads the people in the opposite direction. And so, his fathers did not seek false gods, but sought the Lord, and Jehoram willfully causes the people to worship these things. You can take the kings of Judah and you can condense them and kind of project them onto your own life in a way. And what you can see is within the nation of Judah and the kings, and then in yourself, you can actually see by comparison what sanctification looks like. What it looks like is two steps forward, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and one step backwards with Jehoram. So that's part of the lesson for us is, yes, this is incredibly discouraging. Yes, this is a bad king, and what would you do under these circumstances, but also see progress, growth. We're encouraged when people seek the Lord, and then we're discouraged when we find ourselves slipping, backsliding. But we also want to look back and say, that growth over there was real, and the sin right here is real too. And we want to hate the sin, and we want to grow in grace and remember uh, as we would look for a word of grace here, remember that the situation is not beyond God's reach. And so, why does he end up getting here? How does Jehoram get in this situation? He had a good grandfather and a good father uh, to give him an example. But I think it's a lesson to us that uh, each and every one of us is, is responsible for our own lives and our own actions. We can't depend on our parents to have been good people in our stead. And so, Jehoram we, as the text makes clear in verse 6, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Who you marry will impact your spiritual life. You want to be equally yoked because you want to be pulling in the same direction. Now, Jehoshaphat had mistakenly arranged this marriage, so he's partly to blame. Uh, but Jehoram's heart, just like the heart of Solomon, just like the heart of uh, others, is pulled away as his wife is not a believer. She's the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, who are notorious idolaters, and she contributes to his leadership of idolatry in the southern kingdom. And so, uh, what Jehoram does is he undoes so much of the previous reigns of his grandfather and father. And so, he's a son of David, he's a son of a good king, and he's the grandson of a good king, but he goes his own way. There's a sense in which there's no formula for trying to make sure everything's going to be nice and neat after Jehoshaphat's gone. Jehoshaphat's gone, and now there's no control. 
And so there's no formula. Every man and every woman will need to realize sooner or later that they are responsible for their own actions and their own words. The faith of Jehoshaphat cannot save Jehoram. These are the things that Jehoshaphat, or this, the things that Jehoram has made. But thankfully, we can look at our text and we can see what the Lord has made. This is our second point. Paul in his epistles uses the word but very effectively, right? But God. Well, in verse 7, we have our but God. Verse 7, yet the Lord. That's, that should pique our ears. There's something good coming here. Uh, that yet the Lord was not willing to destroy. That's the word of grace, that the Lord is not willing to destroy. So we've talked about what Jehoram has made, and now we can see what the Lord has made. Our text tell, tells us in verse 7 that the Lord is not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he made with David, since he made a promise. So he made a covenant and he made promises. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is probably one of the most important things you need to understand when you're reading the Bible because we've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. We could call that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There are many covenants made in the Bible. Men make covenants between each other, like Jacob and Laban and Abraham and Abimelech and Isaac and others. Men make covenants between one another. But interestingly, God makes covenants with people. In Genesis 15, he makes a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 8, he makes a covenant with Noah. In Genesis 3, he made a covenant with Adam. In Exodus, he makes a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. There's a lot of covenants in the Bible, but there's really it's one overarching covenant from Genesis to Revelation, and it's the covenant of grace. And then more and more is revealed. It's a little more bigger and a little more grander, and it's also a little bit more specific as it goes from Adam to Noah to Abraham and, um, uh, and to Jacob and Moses. Uh, and as it comes to David, he makes a covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where David says, I want to build a temple. The Lord said, your son will build a temple. You want to build a house for me, but I will make your house great. And David says, what is my house that you would make us so great? So that's why the, house, uh, that's why the, the text uses this phrase, the house of David. The house of David is trying to bring us back to that idea of this covenant with David. Even though Jehoram is an awful king, he's still a son of David, and that means something. It means something in God's eyes. It means not that Jehoram's just going to have everything work out for himself, clearly not, but it does mean the Lord is going to be gracious not to wipe out the house of David. We can be encouraged and take comfort in the fact that God makes promises and He keeps them. Our circumstances, our own actions can't cause him to not keep his promises. It didn't cause that for Abraham and Sarah and their uh, doubting, lack of belief. It didn't cause that with even Adam and Eve. The Lord responds to our sin with grace. And so he made this covenant with David and with David's house. And it's a, it's a promise to be gracious. So we can be incredibly encouraged that the Lord is, even in this messy king, is still speaking a word of grace that we ought to hear. And yet it doesn't mean that it's going to work out smoothly. It's going to be hard. He'll keep His promises, but He'll keep them the way He intends to keep them. And so, 
as he's a covenant-keeping God, he takes covenant actions. One of his covenant actions is to send a prophet, his own representative, right? The prophet doesn't represent the people. The prophet represents God. That's why Elijah and others always say, thus saith the Lord. They're not here to talk to God for the people. That's what a priest does, and that's why he has priests. But it's for God to speak to the people. And so, a covenant-keeping God sends a covenant message. A covenant message comes from Elijah in the form of a letter. And this is what Elijah says. The letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom. And also you have killed your brothers of your father's house, who were better than you. Behold, the Lord will bring great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you yourself will have a severe sickness with a disease. Elijah's message doesn't sound like grace. It sounds like judgment. He declares these things, and then verse 16 says, And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram enemies. And so Elijah brings bad news, and then the bad news comes to fulfillment. And it's, it's a concentric circle. Bad things will happen to your people and your kingdom. Bad things will happen to your house. Bad things will happen to your family. And bad things are going to happen to you. And then fulfillment. So then the Arabians and the Philistines rise up. And the Arabians and Philistines are interesting to be noted here because they've just been referenced in the previous chapters as having paid tribute to Jehoshaphat. So now this is further rebellion, the further unraveling of the kingdom. So they sense weakness. They strike, and their strike is devastating. They're not like the Edomites who seem to get some independence. But the Arabians and the Philistines strike right at the heart of the kingdom, right into Jerusalem, right in the king's own house. They steal his gold, his silver, his wives. They kill his sons. They wipe out everything. Jehoram survives, and his youngest son survives. And now all the riches of the kingdom are gone, and just an empty, ransacked palace is left, and a despicable king and a young prince, the least likely of his own brothers, the youngest, is all that's left. And so Jehoram's kingdom and his family have suffered, and now he himself will suffer. But we don't want to forget the covenant, right? The Lord made a covenant, He made promises, but what is this promise? What's He going to do for the house of David? Because it doesn't sound like he's going to do anything for Jehoram. What he promised in verse 7 is a lamp. That's his promise. It's good news. It's going to be a lamp. I think of, uh, when I think of lamps, I think of the Pixar animation to open up a lot of movies. The little lamp comes out, finds the eye in Pixar, jumps on it, jumps on it flattens it. And then he looks at the camera, goes dark, light goes out. But there's a lamp. There's a light. Lamps give off light in a dark place. Lamps mean something. Depending on what lamp you're thinking of, you know, they don't have electricity, they're not pulling the cord, but the lamps you might be thinking of might be a lamp in the temple, a lamp with oil 
and fire that's going to burn like a candle. And the priests, one of their jobs is to keep that lamp burning all day and all night, particularly at night as it's dark, so that the people could look to the tabernacle or look to the temple and they could see a little bit of light. And what they're supposed to remember are things like this, little fire representing the fire of the cloud of God that led the people through the wilderness, and a little fire to remind them that the Lord has made a promise to David that there will be a lamp in your house forever. The lamp will be even more clearly, one of your sons will always sit on this throne. It's a big promise. And the Lord shows that He's keeping that promise because He says, one of your sons will always sit on this throne, even if that son of David is Jehoram. Even if it's Jehoram, I'll keep my promise. And so the lamp is there. The light is there. And of course, how can we not think of light and think of a lamp and not think of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I am the light of the world. And so we see a little mini fulfillment the Lord doesn't wipe out Jehoram, and yet we see it point to a greater fulfillment, that a greater light is coming, a light that can actually do something and not just represent something. And so we see with the promises of God, sometimes they hang by a thread. All that's left here of the house of David is a wicked king and a son who will also prove to be a wicked son. And that's it. It's just down to them. Only Jehoahaz is left. Jehoram's killed his own brothers, and so he's unwittingly helped wipe out most of the house of David. And then his enemies have killed most of his sons. It looks like the serpent is winning. It looks like a situation with Abraham and Sarah, 190 years old, and waiting for a promised son. God says he'll keep his promises, but the promises are looking quite slim in their odds. The salvation of the world even hangs in the balance. Isn't Christ supposed to come from the sons of David? There's hardly any of them left. And yet, as Jesus showed with the feeding of the 5,000, God does some of His best work with the leftovers. And so we've seen what Jehoram has made, and we see what uh, God has made. Now we can see what the people have made. There's still more to our text. The people end up making something. Jehoram has heard the worst news from Elijah. And as you know, what is left unsaid is possibly more important sometimes than what is even said. So what is actually said here? What, what is said is judgment. We hear from God through Elijah's letter, but then we don't hear what Jehoram says. We hear Rehoboam make speeches. We hear Solomon make prayers. We hear David speak. We hear Abijah even speak of God's kingdom and stand up against Israel with great confidence. We hear Asa pray. We, hear, we heard Jehoshaphat's prayer last week. But what does Jehoram have to say? He has zero words recorded in Scripture. What is left unsaid tells you almost more than what is said. Jehoram does not do anything. He does not say anything. Elijah announces that there will be judgment, and Jehoram doesn't respond. And so, what we don't see, we don't see him repent. Some kings hear judgment because they're wicked, and then they actually repent, and that's good news. It's encouraging. But with Jehoram, we don't see any turning. We've seen him turn towards idols, but now we don't see him turn away from idols, and we don't see him turn toward the Lord. 
So to add to his negative record, is he's not a repenter, which is also discouraging because you can put up with some of that wickedness when you see him repent and say, ah, the Lord's at work here. Instead, he has a hard heart. He won't turn. And it's interesting that his judgment on himself, all these horrible things come upon him, but the judgment on him is even an awful agonizing death as this text has reference to bowels many times. That's where the Lord strikes him. Why does Jehoram survive these things? Why doesn't he die with his sons? Why isn't he carried off like his wives? Why isn't he defeated? Well, he is defeated, but why, why, why does he even make it through this? It doesn't tell us, but you can think of some things that are unsaid. Perhaps he just looked out for number one. Perhaps he left his own sons behind, his own wives, his own kingdom. It's interesting that he's he survives, but then he survives to an awful death. He's looked out for number one. He saved his own skin, and now the Lord shows that he cannot escape from judgment. He may have escaped from the sword of his enemies, but he will not escape from judgment because his own inner person will be struck. If his heart wouldn't be moved, perhaps his bowels will be moved. And so Jesus, it says in the Gospels, was moved in his spirit, right? He had compassion. He's moved in his spirit. What, what that's actually talking about is that he's feeling something in his gut. He, he, he's feeling compassion for people, for, for the people, because they looked like sheep without a shepherd. That's what Jesus feels. What Jehoram will feel is judgment. He will feel death. As he's looked out for number one, as he's looked to himself, it's pretty easy to think that he's probably someone who loves himself. But as Psalm 112, verse 10, it's put in one Psalter this way. For what the wicked most desire shall utterly decay. If he desires to save himself, even he himself will utterly decay from the inside out. He dies an unclean man, an unclean death, and it's a lonely death. But what do we see the people do? We don't see Jehoram do anything, but the people do something in response to who he is. And so what the people do is summarized this way. How do, how do they respond to this king? I mean, he's a, we've seen some of them rebel, but we're also told some other things. They made no fire in his honor. So it's really not about what they made, it's about what they did not make. They made no fire in his honor. The Lord has kept his covenant, but Jehoram has made the people sin. And now these people respond to this king who has introduced them to a more pleasurable, accessible, perhaps even more like the nation's type of religion, should they be thankful. He's, he's, been fa- he's, he's defeated enemies. Uh, he has, uh, he's, he's tried reuniting the kingdom through his marriage. Perhaps there's hope that Israel and Judah can be united as one again under, under Jehoram. How do they respond? As, uh, he's, he's defeated in battle. As, uh, there's, there's conflict, confusion. Or how do they even uh, perhaps respond when a prophet comes to judge him and he, he's so humble, he just doesn't say a thing? Right? What kind of a king is he? Well, their actions tell us everything. They make no fire in his honor. There is nothing to recognize. You know, if there's going to be a state funeral for Jehoram, it's canceled. Nobody shows up. Nobody wants to go to that funeral for that king. And so even in his death, his reign fulfills the word of the Lord. He who honors me, I will honor. 
Jehoram did not honor the Lord, and he does not die with honor. Even Asa, his grandfather, who imprisoned God's prophet when he faced judgment, Asa, uh, who treated the people harshly in his last years, he was overall a good king with a bitter end. And we are told the people made a very great fire in his honor. That's how Asa ends. He is honored as the son of David and is uh, not judged by his worst days, but by his best days, by the Lord's grace. In eight years, Jehoram undoes 66 years of Jehoshaphat and Asa's work. They're hard, faithful, and good work, completely undone in less than eight years. And if Jehoram, if we look at Jehoram, what we really see here is a people pleaser. He tries to please the people, tries to please his wife, he introduces these religious policies, idolatry, introducing the people to this religion. He doesn't confront their sins, but he encourages them in the practice of this sinning. And so, as a people pleaser, he's left with nobody actually pleased. The people greatly dislike him, and his own family is wiped out because he doesn't protect them. And so, the people, you can see, are fickle. People have always been fickle. And if you seek to please them, you will find yourself and them both incredibly dissatisfied. Jehoshaphat and Asa, on the whole, they honor God, and he sees to it that they are honored. But Jehoram has no one make a fire in his honor. He dies with no one's regret. So what are some of our lessons? Trust the Lord and trust His means. As He has put this king on the throne, and He intends to keep His promises to the house of David and to His people, and He will keep His covenant because Him keeping His covenant, even through all this awfulness, is something that's much greater and much more personal, and it's something that's going to last uh, far better than hoping that you have a decent king. So you can trust the Lord in His means that He's doing what, exactly what He needs to do when He keeps His promises, even as keeping His promises means you have a king like Jehoram. And that is His means also to care for His people from generation to generation. Politically, the situation's a mess. He's wiped out any of the help that he would have in running the kingdom, uh, and then leaving the kingdom barely in the hands of a young man. Militarily, it's a disaster. He's defeated. He gets himself out of being surrounded, and his kingdom is crushed again. Financially, it's a disaster as their treasury is emptied out. So what do the people have at the end of this? What do the people of Judah have with this king? They have nothing except this. They have the Lord still speaking and the Lord still saying, I will keep my covenant. They can hold on to the Word of God. They can hold on to the promises of God, even as everything else is gone. And so in a moment, we actually have the opportunity to continue to participate in the Lord's means as we would seek to persevere to His ends. We come to the table. What it is is the cup the new covenant in His blood. He still makes covenants. He still makes promises. The Lord Jesus Christ still makes promises. And so, just as there was supposed to be a lamp, and even Jehoram and all of his faults represented that lamp of God's promises, what does John tell us in his gospel? That a light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He himself was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. What we're told is there's still a light, even as 
The Gospel of John helps open up the New Testament, which is the new covenant. And what is the promise? There's still a light. And so we are encouraged to keep pressing forward and believing, trusting His means to get us to His ends. So we want to honor what God honors, trust His means, trust His grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before You. We give You thanks that You have made promises and You keep promises. We praise You, O Lord, that You're the covenant-keeping God and that You have kept covenant forever. You have not given up on Your people and on Your promises, even as some of the most wicked have come along. We thank You, O Lord, that You cleanse us through the blood of Jesus from our own sins. Keep us in Your grace, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.